The New Testament reading this morning is from Revelation 3, 20 to 23. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading this morning is from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 23. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then he began to ask one another which one of them it could be who would do this. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we do thank you for this new day. We thank you that your mercies are new and fresh today once again. Thank you for waking us up, for bringing us here. We thank you for your word and for your spirit and for this good news of Jesus Christ that we come to celebrate today. And we pray now that as we sit with your scriptures that you would meet us in this time, that you would actually uh, stir us, uh, help us to be awake, to be attentive to your presence, to be alert, uh, and to be open-hearted to whatever it is that you would have to hear us, uh, to, to have us here today. Would you speak to us? And would you give us grace that we would hear your voice? We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this summer, uh, we've been focusing our um, attention and energy on coming together as one church. It's been a long pandemic. We're all discombobulated and out of rhythm. And uh, we've been so fragmented and disconnected for so long that this summer we're coming back together. And then also, uh, during the pandemic time, our churches of Liberty Center City and City Church Philadelphia have merged into one, and we have become this new church, Resurrection Philadelphia. And so we're, we're coming together again in some ways. We're coming together for the first time in some ways. And then some of you uh, who are perhaps new to Philadelphia or new to the church, we welcome you, and we're getting to know one another as well, and we hope that this can be a community 
where you can find a home as well. And so we're, we're focusing on coming together. And in order to do that, we've been doing things together this summer. We've been gathering in various neighborhoods. We've been gathering here in Center City on Tuesdays for prayer. We've been gathering in West Philly on Wednesdays for prayer. We've been gathering occasionally over at the Woodland Building for some work days. And I dropped by on Friday and the youth were out there working and doing a great job. And there's gonna be another group out there tomorrow is an opportunity uh, for the whole church to serve tomorrow morning to do some more beautification of that property. So we've been coming together to work, to pray. Uh, we're coming together as well to party. There's a, there's a gathering at Lemon Hill on July 11th uh, next Sunday where we'll gather uh, in the afternoon and just enjoy food and time together and the opportunity to play some lawn games and get to know one another. And so we've been doing some things, but we've also been thinking about some things, discussing some things as we've started this sermon series called The Ties That Bind Us, where we've been thinking about, okay, we're coming together as one church. What is it that holds us together? What is at the center of our life together as a community? And what is that glue that holds us together around that center? And if you recall, in the early weeks, we, we've thought about um, this, uh, these, these questions that St. Augustine prompts us to ask, where St. Augustine reminds us that what makes a people a people is their agreement to share what they love. And so we've been sitting with the questions that naturally arise from a statement like that, which is simply, what is it that we love? And what will our agreement to share our love look like in practice? And so we've talked about some of our big central things, Trinity, Christ, Spirit, Baptism, Covenant. And now this week we come to this practice of communion, this family meal that we share each week when we gather for worship. Now, a couple weeks ago, we welcomed uh, some, a whole group of kids to begin taking communion for the first time. It was a joyful moment uh, on Father's Day, actually, that we got to do that. And that came on the heels of a class that we did that Ann Smith uh, and I co-taught and had some help from some elders as well in that but a, a class called Coming to the Table, where we spent several weeks with the kids talking about what is this communion meal? And what does it mean for us to participate in it? What does it mean when we come to the communion table? And we talked about how you know, the communion meal is a family meal, that what God has done in Christ has created a new family, right? A family around Jesus, a family united by his spirit. And this family has a meal together, and that meal is the communion meal. And so one reason we come is because you're part of the family, right? And it's the family meal. And the kids talked about, we, we talked about the Thanksgiving dinner that we often celebrate each year. And they asked the kids to ask, okay, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? And nobody said turkey, right? Everyone's like apple pie or, you know, one of, the, one of those. But we went around and talked about what, what's your favorite dish at the Thanksgiving feast? And then imagine that your, your whole family is there and everybody's got their plate and it's all filled up with the feast, but not yours. You have to just sit there and watch. Would you be bummed out? And all the kids are like, yes, that would be such a bummer to come to the feast and everybody else is feasting, but not me. And you say, yeah, that would be an appropriate feeling to be at the table, but not included, right? Do you wanna come? And the kids talked about why they would wanna come. Do you recognize that you're part of the family? And they would talk about how they recognize that they're part of the family. And so that's, that's one aspect as we talk about communion. This is what we do as the family of God in Christ. We have a feast and we celebrate it together. 
We also talked about how this meal is it's related to that concept of covenant that we talked about last week, right? That Andrew taught us about from, from Hebrews. The covenant, this promise that God makes, that God binds himself to a people, that at the center of that covenant is not only a mediator, as Andrew taught us about last week, but a meal. And so this meal is for that people who are participating in that promise of God. And it's the one that Jesus himself instituted on that Maundy Thursday, the day before he was crucified, the day he was betrayed, as we just read about from the passage in Luke's gospel. But then when we talked about it with the kids, we're going through the class, it's not just that it's a family meal, and it's not just that it's this covenant meal, but it's also, it's a sacrament, which is a big fancy religious word that means essentially, basically what it means is it's not just something we do. It's something God does. Sacrament is something holy that Jesus himself has given for all God's people. That's not just something that we do together when we gather, but we believe God does something when we do it. That Jesus invites us to his own table and feeds us directly by his spirit with bread and with, with wine that he makes for us the communion in his own body and blood. So something that God is actually working in. And then lastly, as we, as we talked with the kids, we talked about it's a meal of remembrance, communion, and hope. And those are like three, like a three-part dance that we did. Remembrance, looking back. Communion, looking up and around. And hope, looking forward. You know, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me when he instituted the supper. And he was calling his disciples to, to recognize that in this meal, they are to do it in a way where they're looking back to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to remember the faithfulness of God in Christ. And that part of what we do when we gather is we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. But there's also this, this aspect of it where it's, you know, this word communion, relationship, fellowship, right? We actually come to eat with Jesus, who's our host. And we come to eat with all the other guests that Jesus invites to come eat with him, right? So we eat with Jesus and with Jesus' guests, and we come as guests ourselves. But not just that, but we come to be fed by Jesus, who's not only the host, he's the meal, He's that once-for-all Passover lamb who was slain, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as John Nevin once put it, he said, you know, the Paschal lamb must be eaten, physically incorporated into the life of the worshiper to give him or her part in the covenant of which it is the seal. So it's this communion of Christ's body and blood, a real participation in his own human life as the one and only all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. So it's a, it's a meal of remembrance, it's a meal of communion, but it's also a meal of hope. So we're not just looking back to remember Jesus. We're not just looking up to see him alive and risen today and around to see all those whom he invites, but we also look forward and hope to a future day, which is why we say every single week when we come to the table, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We're looking forward to a moment to which the meal points. We're looking forward to a moment when Christ will return to make all things new, to bring to fullness this good work which he has begun, 
to bring the fullness of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and when we will dine with him in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth at the great marriage supper of the lamb, this moment for which all creation is waiting and groaning as we are bearing witness as the church in the midst of this moment, bearing witness to that coming day when God will make all things new. And so Jesus has given us this sacrament of communion which is also called the Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving. He's given us this meal of remembrance and communion and hope as a primary way of experiencing God's welcome and God's generous provision so that we will be formed into Jesus' likeness in the way that we live toward God and toward others as a people of remembrance, communion, and hope. And so as I want us to think about this communion practice as a way that we experience God's welcome and God's gracious provision, those two things. And then as we do that, I want us to also consider how our experience of God's welcome and how our experience of God's generous provision might actually form us as a people of hospitality, gratitude, and generosity as we live in the world like Jesus for the sake of the world or at least for the sake of whatever parts of the world we inhabit and influence in our own lives. So let's think about God's welcome. You know, as we read the stories of the Gospels, if you read through just the stories of Jesus' life, we see over and over again that one of the primary ways that Jesus takes up his work of remaking a community of God's people is by cultivating fellowship around a table. Jesus is always eating with people. He shows up at parties and makes them better. Or he, he engages friends who are unlikely friends and creates this new and surprising fellowship and makes friends out of people who shouldn't be friends by any other metric, right? This is just what Jesus does. Uh, giving and receiving food and drink and inviting all sorts of people to join him in that fellowship was central to his ministry. And so was inviting others to invite him into their homes. Jesus actually loved to invite himself over. Um, and he did it in a way that wasn't, you know, intrusive or inappropriate. He did it in a way that allowed his welcome of another to call forth hospitality from them. Think of Jesus showing up at Zacchaeus in the tree. If that's a story you know, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's kind of a shady dude who's scammed a bunch of people out of a bunch of money. Uh, you know, there's this opportunity to see Jesus and Zacchaeus being short, climbs a tree so he can see over the crowd. And Jesus simply comes up to him, you know, and you can imagine like all eyes on him, right? And there he is, Zacchaeus in the tree. Uh, and Jesus, the way he engages this guy who has like committed all kinds of, you know, like fraud and deceit and he's ripped off a bunch of people. The way Jesus engages him is not like calling him out right, right then and there, first and foremost. What Jesus does is he says, aren't you going to have me over? You know, it's like, aren't you going to have me over for, for food at your house? Um, and then he does, Jesus, Zacchaeus has Jesus over and it is the moment that begins to change his whole life. You know, Zacchaeus receives him and his life is changed. I also think of Jesus uh, on Easter day in the upper room with the disciples. Jesus, this risen Jesus, makes his way th right through the locked doors and shows up in a very surprising manner 
with those disciples who are freaked out and afraid on the other end of the crucifixion. They're hiding, they're scared, they're trying to figure out what's what. And Jesus shows up in their midst, and what does he say to them? Well, he says, peace be with you. And then he also says, aren't you going to give me some food? Do you have anything to eat? Before his death and resurrection, after his death and resurrection, Jesus shows up and eats with people, right? It's in the breaking of bread. It's in the sharing of fish. It's in this, you know, this giving and, and receiving of food and drink that the eyes of those are opened and people recognize Christ as the Lord. And Jesus has this habit of pursuing and welcoming people into his company, and he calls forth hospitality from those he welcomes. His welcome makes us welcoming. Rowan Williams says, for Christians to share in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, means to live as people who know that they are always guests, that they've been welcomed, and that they are wanted. It is perhaps the most simple thing that we can say about Holy Communion, yet it is still supremely worth saying. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. We are welcome, we are wanted, we are his guests. And in our weekly celebration of communion, we practice this. We practice believing this. We practice sharing this. We practice enacting this. We practice living as guests of the Lord alongside other guests. We become those who eat and drink with the risen Christ. Receiving God's welcome, it makes us welcomers and inviters. You know, and during the COVID time, gatherings were so limited, but when we were able to have them, it was often like super limited guest list, right? Like maybe three of us could hang out outdoors or things relaxed a little bit and then maybe, maybe we could gather outdoors with a larger group or indoors with a much smaller group. And we've gotten so used to these tiny guest lists and these hyper-managed guest lists to make sure that we're just like doing it okay. Or you go to a wedding and you know, somebody's footing the bill for a great big celebration, so the guest list has to be a certain size just because it's super expensive. And so you have to be really careful, like which 70 people get to come or which 100 people get to come. There's something about the invitation of Jesus in communion that we practice where you realize that the guest list is not hyper-managed in that way. The guest list is not small or stingy, and it's not like you're invited with a plus one. You know what I mean? You get the invite, and it's like, who's your plus one? Because this is how we just try to be responsible as hosts of a party when we're not the unlimitedly resourced host of the world. You have more than a plus one. You're welcome into the family of God, your welcome to the family feast comes with a plus as many as you would care to bring with you. The welcome of God transforms us to become welcomers in his name, to become those who share the feast abundantly, graciously, generously, to actually be thinking about who do I know who's hungry for this feast? Who do I know who is thirsting for that living water that only Christ offers? In what ways am I hungering and thirsting for it? And can I even just pay attention to those realities in my own life so that I'm understanding how Jesus feeds me and slakes my thirst in real ways? 
that stir my soul and nourish me? Can I talk about that in real ways that are useful to you? Can you talk about that in real ways that are useful to me? How Jesus meets you in your longings, how Jesus meets you in your losses, how Jesus meets you in your fears and your hopes and dreams, in your limitations and in your disappointments and in your aspirations and how he meets you with his all-sufficient self who says, I'm right here with you and I am enough. My feast is the one that leaves you never going hungry again. My living water is the one that means you will never thirst again. Everything else is an appetizer. Everything else is a shadow. How does Jesus feed you? How does Jesus slake your thirst? Can you talk about that in real ways? Because if you can and when you can, your neighbors are hungry and thirsty just the same way that you are. And of course, the religious stuff gets boring, right? The church becomes this sort of spiritual cul-de-sac where it's like you go round and round and you try it and it's like, eh, not interesting. But the way Jesus meets us in real life, in our real human longings, in our real human experiences, that is something every single human craves because we're all bearers of God's image. We all live in a broken world and we're all starved for the nourishment that our maker can give us and only he can give us our creator, our sustainer, the lover of our souls, the feeder of our bellies, the one who makes us and all things and holds all things together, invites you to a feast, welcomes you and wants you, and gives you an invitation with a plus as many as you want to bring. That should be transformative in our lives as we recognize the startling grace and hospitality of Jesus to us. Do you know that God welcomes you and wants you? Like, can you believe that? And what are the things that make that hard for you to believe? What are the things that make you wonder if God would really want you here? Your sins, your sorrow, your suffering, the ways in which you feel less than, the ways in which you feel shamed, or the things that you carry, the burdens you carry, the way you feel like maybe you're too much. What is it? What are those things that compete with the voice of Jesus who welcomes you and wants you? What are the things that make it hard for you to believe that you're on the list as a desired guest? Those things don't speak as truly of your life as the welcome of God for you. The invitation is for you because Jesus welcomes you and he wants you. And then as you think about your neighbor, what are the things about your neighbors that make you think maybe they're not on the list? Maybe God doesn't want them. Maybe God's welcome isn't for them. Maybe, they, maybe that's why you, maybe they're not worth your time or maybe you wouldn't bother or maybe you don't want to pollute what's going on in here with something that's going on out there. Do you know that God wants and welcomes your neighbor? Do you know that the same reason that all the reasons you might not be on the list, <laughs> all those things, all those lies in your head and heart and in my head and heart that make me think maybe I'm not a wanted guest, that same grace that is enough for me is the same grace that is enough for your neighbor. And the reason we're included is only on the basis of the gracious invitation of the host, Jesus Christ, who has given himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. 
And this communion meal, when we practice it together, this is what we practice. Christ is enough. His grace is enough for you, for me, for our neighbor. And that's why the sacramental unity of the church is so important. That what binds us together is not our being on the same page about things. That what binds us together is not our ability to avoid messing up in these particular ways. Or what binds us together is not that we've managed to be just this particular kind of the right person. No. What binds us together is Jesus himself. What binds us together is the invitation that we've all been invited by the same host. What binds us together is that we each, by his invitation, have a seat at this same table and we, we come as guests based only on his grace in a communion of saints in which there is no second-class citizen. There are only full-fledged children of God adopted into the family by participation in the beloved son. And this is what communion is about. And this is profoundly difficult for us. And it was profoundly difficult for the early church. Because if you look at the early church, what they were working out in real time was that the new family that God was creating in Christ was one that included both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And if you know much about Jewish people and non-Jewish people in the early days in, those, in the ancient world, what you know is that the Jewish people had organized their life together around Torah, right, around the law. They had particular practices, especially dietary practices, that were very, very important. You couldn't eat pig. You had to wash in particular ways. They were, and, and you weren't to share fellowship with people who didn't do that too. And then Jesus comes along and he sends his spirit and he begins to create a new family that's not based on doing these particular things, but is simply based on gathering around Jesus and having received the Spirit. And so the early church is freaking out. They're like, what do we do about this? Because our own Bible says to not do this, but here God is and the Spirit says to do it this way and not to call unclean what I've called clean. And so what we see in the early church is God bringing together people across these lines where we have to appreciate just how grossed out they would have been by one another. If you grow up, as a first century Jewish person observing Torah all your life, a pig eating Roman is not only wrong, but disgusting. And here you are and you're supposed to share a meal with this person. You're supposed to be received as a guest on the same terms that they're received as a guest. But they're doing it all wrong. The apostles worked this out in real time. They struggled to make sense of this. They fought with one another about this. They corrected one another about this. This is what they had to like work through in a world where the unity of Christ was actually drawing together people who were so divided that they had to actually do that uncomfortable work of coming together on the basis of a different unity, on the basis of grace. And it wasn't just that Jew, Gentile, Jew, non-Jew kind of a thing that they were overcoming. They were also overcoming the social norms of their day, right? In the Greco-Roman world, uh, the way that you would order your life socially had a lot to do with your class, with your social class, with honor. Um, and social capital uh, was a big deal. And so um, there was a way you'd do things if you gathered for a meal. And like specifically, if you were part of the upper class, 
you would get to sit at the table in the middle, and if you were part of the lower class, you would have to sit around the edges of the room and watch until the upper class people had already had their fill. And then you'd get your turn later if there was anything left over. And when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he calls them out because the way that they're organizing their life together in the practice of communion is not based on the grace of God in Christ. They're actually ordering their life around the social values of their society, the class-based system. And so he's saying, look, some of you are eating and drinking up all the bread and wine. There's not enough left for everybody. And when you gather together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, but you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Why? Because you're putting aside some people and treating them like second-class citizens in the body of Christ. You're ordering your life together, not around the way of Christ, but around the way of worldly values and customs. And so you're, you're portraying for the world the whole wrong picture. You look like a very Greco-Roman group, not like the family of Christ. So that's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. That's a different kind of supper. And he calls them out. It's hard to work out the real unity that we have in Christ. It's hard to be dependent purely on the welcome of God's grace because we all want to have our own thing that we bring to the table. But the beauty of God's welcome is that it is truly gracious for you and for your neighbor. And that the table that he sets, he sets in the same way for you and for your neighbor and for me. And he calls us to join him as guests as equals, as bearers of God's image, as children of the Father, as participants in the crucified and risen Son, in the fellowship of the Spirit. The welcome of God. It's to be transformative and it's something we experience and practice together at the communion table. And then secondly and lastly, the generosity of God that we see at the communion table. At the Last Supper, Jesus describes his own approaching death not as simply a tragedy that's about to happen, but actually as an open door to a new kind of hope for the world. That what's happening is God's giving of his own self and of his own son, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world as a sacrifice. And Jesus in this moment, his death nearly approaching, he himself models gratitude for the gift by giving thanks, right? If you just read the passage from Luke or if you just listen every single week as we do the words of institution at the Lord's table, on the night, which night? On the night that the Lord was betrayed, what did he do? He gave thanks. In the company of his betrayer and on the eve of his death, Jesus gives thanks for the gift of God. And in doing that, he connects the darkest, the hardest, the scariest, the most tragic, most painful aspects of his own human experience to the presence of God, the gift giver. He gives thanks and he teaches his disciples to do the same in remembrance of him. Gratitude. Gratitude implies a giver and it needs a giver. And when we practice gratitude, it connects us to the gift giver, right? Have you ever received a generous gift? Have you ever received a generous gift and enjoyed giving thanks? Of course. 
Because there's something about the giving thanks that connects you to the giver and makes the experience of the gift a joyful one for both the giver and the receiver alike. There's a human connection that happens through generosity and gratitude. And have you ever noticed how hard it is to be cynical while you're also being thankful? It's really difficult to do both of those things at the same time. It's also really difficult uh, to be bitter and thankful at the same time. It's just like, they just like compete for, for real estate in my head and heart. I mean, maybe your experience is different, but for me, just speaking as a human and not as any expert on gratitude or anything, I'm just, it's difficult for me when I'm being thankful to be cynical or to be bitter. And so there's something about practicing gratitude intentionally that almost cultivates a kind of joy and openness that the cynicism and bitterness want to steal. But practicing gratitude is an antidote for some of those toxins that want to creep into my attitude, my heart, my head, and make me poisonous to other people. Practicing gratitude is a healthy and humanizing practice that connects us relationally to God the giver. And it's a practice that actually reframes every experience we have, right? Because God, who is the maker of all things, is also the giver of all that we have. And this communion feast that's also called the Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving, it's meant to be a weekly practice of gratitude that shapes us as thankful people, right? And it's a practice that we actually carry forward from this space of gathered worship into our lives in all the scattered places that we may go. You eat most every day, I would imagine, right? We don't just eat when we gather at the Lord's table. We eat uh, all the time. And there's an aspect in which our eating together at the table of the Lord here is to shape the way that we eat all the days of our lives. Um, Norm Wiersbe, uh, in his book, Food and Faith, says that to say grace before a meal is among the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. Because here around the table and before witnesses, we testify to the experience of life as a precious gift to be received and given again. We acknowledge that we do not and cannot live alone, but are the beneficiaries of the kindness and mysteries of grace upon grace. And there's a way to pray before a meal that's rote, right? There's a, way to, there's a way to do it that's mindless and kind of checking off a box that's empty or waving a, a hand over a meal, but there's also a way to do it that connects you to the giver of every good gift that you have. There's a way to engage in the eating of your daily meal, a gratitude, and a, like a lowercase s sacramental practice around your dependence upon God's feeding you that shapes you daily in gratitude, that shapes you as one who receives the gift and connects you to the giver. These little things that we do become the vehicles through which virtue is formed in a people. And that patient, slow, day-by-day, week-by-week formation is the way that Jesus grows us up to be like him, as the life that we do here in this gathered space begins to shape what we do everywhere. Thomas Merton would talk about a great moment of transformation in his own life was when he began to recognize everyone in the world as belonging to him. Like everyone went from being strangers to being like kindred spirits to him because there was this moment of recognition where he realized God has given me today, God has given me all that I have, God has given me you. And so there's a way of living into the world where 
you don't belong to anyone or whatever, you're just, you're just doing life. And then there's a way to live into the world where you realize God has given you all the people who come into your life. God has given you all the moments. God has given you all the situations. And that, the, and that in all of them, God is with you in it and inviting you to join Jesus in this work of practicing gratitude and hospitality in a way that shares his life and love in the world. And so we come to this communion meal to be those who are shaped in receiving God's gift, which involves thanksgiving. It's gonna involve repentance as we turn from all the ways we're closed off and turning to be open to the giver of the gift. And it's gonna involve faith, where we entrust ourselves to him and we actually surrender all the ways we wanna make life ourselves, for ourselves, by our own limited power. And we, with open hands, release that and surrender that and say, no, I will receive the good gift from my giver. I will receive what you have for me today because I trust that it is good. This passage that we read from, Re from Revelation um, chapter three is just this little excerpt from you know, the letters to the seven churches, the letter to the church in Laodicea. But it just says, Jesus, it's his words, you know, listen, I'm knocking at the door and if you open to me, I will come and I will eat with you and I'll be with you. And that's what we practice at the communion meal and what that should do is shape us to live every moment of every day realizing that Jesus is right there at the door knocking. He's right there with you. He's inviting you to open to him, to be with him because you're welcome and you're wanted. And he's calling forth from you hospitality toward him. He's calling forth from you, sharing those moments of your day with him who loves you and is faithful to walk with you, with him who shares in your sufferings and gives you hope, with him who feeds you at his table and feeds your neighbor. Jesus is inviting you to that openness to him and to your neighbor to welcome him, to share that welcome, to know that welcome, and to offer it freely as a bearer of his welcome into the world. And so my prayer and my hope for us as Resurrection Philadelphia, as we practice this communion meal each week, as we enter into communion with God through prayer and through openness, that we would become a people who experience deeply the welcome of God and the generosity of the God who has loved us with lavish grace in his son Jesus. And that by our experience of welcome, by our experience of his generosity, we would become a people of hospitality, of gratitude, and of generosity, like Jesus in the world. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you for your great love and your mercy toward us in Christ. We thank you for just the gratuitous hospitality you extend to us. As you know everything about our story, you know all that we're feeling and thinking, you know our frigid hearts and how fickle we are and how bored we get, how obsessed we get with how we look or what we're in control of or what we're achieving or what other people are saying about us. And you simply embrace us as we are and invite us to rest in you to come into your home and to feast with you 
and to be nourished, to be strengthened, and then to be sent, not in your absence, but as companions with you into the world. That is a deep and powerful mystery, and I pray that you would help us to apprehend it more and more, and that you would help us to taste and to see your goodness and your love as you feed us at the table of Christ. And would you also open our eyes and our hearts to one another in this community and in this city in the world that we would recognize that your sufficient grace that we receive as a gift is sufficient also for our neighbors. And so we are free to love. We are free to release all the demands we have to control the outcomes of all the things and simply to be with you as bearers of your love into the world. God, would you do that good work among us, we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.